Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Jeff Sahadio, author of the new book, Voices from the Soviet Edge, Southern Migrants in Leningrad and Moscow. Jeff is associate professor at the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at Carleton University. He is the author of Russian Colonial Society in Tashkent, 1865 to 1923, and co-editor of Everyday Life in Central Asia. We spoke to Jeff about his research on the Soviet-era migration of people from the Caucasus and Central Asia into Leningrad and Moscow, how the Soviet concept of the friendship of peoples worked and did work, and the rewards and challenges Jeff faced basing his book on oral histories. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited about your new book, Voices from the Soviet Edge, Southern Migrants in Leningrad and Moscow, just out this month. Beautiful, striking cover. Um, and we have a few questions uh, to ask you. So your book is about Leningrad and Moscow, and these major cities are generally viewed by historians of the Soviet Union as isolated spaces of Russian and Soviet life. Your research on the massive migration from the Soviet Union's southern periphery shows that not to be the case at all. Tell us what you found. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I had always considered, and, and Leningrad and Moscow are still often considered in the Soviet period as so-called showcase cities. There, there was a residence permit system that kept um, seemingly the numbers of people who came in at a minimum. Uh, and Leningrad and Moscow were seen not just control and administrative hubs, but also intellectual and cultural ones of the Soviet Union. They had the best selection of food, consumer goods, and all of the, the novels and the films that you see at the Soviet Union, uh, they talk about the glory of Leningrad and Moscow, and that was only available for the select few. And, and so I had this in mind when I first went to Moscow in 1992. I expected to see Russians, ethnic Russians. You know, I grew up in Canada, and I, I was thinking of, I'd see people who look like Russian hockey players or ballerinas or, or babushkas or something. All of a sudden, Moscow is a city with people from China, Africa, and then especially the people from the groups that I was thinking about, the uh, Caucasus and, and Central Asia, which was where I'd done my original research. Um, they were laughing, joking on the streets, selling goods. Uh, and I wondered who these people were and what they were doing there. Um, I first sort of thought about Caucasus and Central Asia um, and these people who were there, comparing them to, say, Africans in, in Paris, Indians in London, looking at multi-ethnic and post-colonial cities. Uh, and then as I started talking to people, I realized that they were doing all kinds of things back in the Soviet Union. Students, plumbers, tourist guides, traders. And the more I investigated, I sort of understood the scale of this migration. Uh, what struck me were two things. First, the sense of personal drive that these people had, that they uh, had decided they grew, grew up in a small town in Tajikistan or, or uh, in Georgia, and they thought, I'm going to make it at the center of my part of the world in Leningrad and Moscow. But second, these networks that linked Moscow and Leningrad to the furthest parts of the Soviet Union, again, from Tajikistan to, to Azerbaijan, uh, there could be educational, people were students in Leningrad and Moscow, um, training based. And as whenever people came and went, 
Uh, they went back to, they went to Moscow, they bought goods, they brought them back, um, or they brought goods from home to sell in Leningrad and Moscow. It strengthened those networks and every trip had an impact on those who surrounded them. So really Leningrad and Moscow were part of this whole Soviet system. And I think we forget, you know, we see the Soviet Union as this huge space and it can't really be as integrated as we thought, but people had ways of moving around. And I thought that was a really fascinating uh, finding uh, that surprised me from the, the time I went there um, to the time I was researching the book and now that I finished writing it. That is fascinating. So within that, you, you talk about the Soviet concept of the friendship of peoples. Um, and tell us, tell us a little bit about that and how that spirit of that concept wasn't always fully realized at the time. Yeah, I thought the, the phrasing of the friendship of peoples in Russian was always kind of cool. And again, when I was in Moscow the first time in 1992, uh, it was <clears throat> plastered on the top of buildings, billboards. Uh, you see it um, in any of the pictures that you saw of say, Tashkent in Uzbekistan or, or these other cities that were parades saluted all the different people, I mean, the 100 nationalities in the Soviet Union, officially recognized ones. There were toasts to the Druzhba Narodov as well. Uh, it was a really unique feature of Soviet life. Now, the fact that it was brought in by Stalin in the 1930s, of course, makes one immediately suspicious of the fact that it was maybe a cover for his murderous behavior. And, and Stalin actually, even though he was an ethnic Georgian, uh, came to favor the Russians uh, as the favored people of the Soviet Union um, from the late 1930s on. And, and then also that might have turned into kind of an empty slogan. A lot of the literature that I read before I set off to do this project said, well, people talked about the friendship of peoples, they talked about Soviet democracy, but it didn't really mean anything to them. Um, however, when I started interrogating friends and colleagues and others who lived through the Soviet time, especially these people who were um, not ethnic Russians and they may, maybe they lived in Moscow or Leningrad, but even if they lived in major multi-ethnic cities in the Soviet Union, I was really amazed at the emotion they showed when they discussed it. I mean, people would tell me stories of mixed families, uh, how they moved back and forth between republics, uh, how well people got along. I would get invitations sometimes to like dinner parties and people would say, uh, I have a Russian wife and uh, I'm Uzbek, I have a Russian wife. I, uh, my sister married a Kazakh. Uh, we have children from uh, mixed children and they play with these kids. They're all gonna be at dinner. I'm gonna show you the friendship of peoples in, in action at the micro level. Uh, and I thought that was just, it was so much fun to hear people's voices or the sort of pride they expressed that they were part of something bigger. And part of it was being part of the Soviet Union. Of course, this was after the Soviet Union, but part of a bigger world. Um, now, it's true that there were limits, and the Russians were clearly in this um, friendship, the boss. And they were called technically in the, the lingo at the time, the elder brother or starshi brat. But uh, for better or for worse, people recognized they had this privileged position. Russian was a language of, of communication. Um, there were top institutes of higher education were all in Russian. Uh, and in fact, some of the people who went to Leningrad and Moscow, and this is really another really fascinating thing I found, was that they, they would say, well, we went to Leningrad and Moscow to escape prejudice, which I thought was kind of strange. They said, well, even when I was in the capital of my home country, say Tashkent in Uzbekistan or, or Yerevan in Armenia, 
they say, well, in those cities, the Russians dominated because in what the Russians almost saw as colonies, the Russians were dominant in the cities and these people were considered, the, the Azerbaijanis or the Kyrgyz were considered kind of hicks, villagers. So they said, I had to go to Moscow or Leningrad where there was, there was greater equality. Um, but at the same time, overall, I'd say uh, there was a lot of nostalgia, this idea that there was a quality of opportunity, even if you had to move to get it. Generally, there was safety um, in the Soviet Union. Certainly, people would say, oh, I could walk the streets at two in the morning. Nothing would happen to me. Uh, and they kept talking about this concept of freedom which we don't usually equate with the Soviet Union, but the people of the time say, oh, I could move across borders. I could go from Siberia to the Caucasus to, to the Baltic states. I, nobody ever asked to see my passport. I could, um, I could just decide what kind of job I wanted. I could pick my friends. I could go to university. Uh, things are actually a lot harder now in those countries where the economic situation is much more difficult. Um, so all of these things get wrapped up in the friendship of peoples. Interesting. So within that, uh, within that concept and beyond it, how, how does your work see race and racism working in the Soviet times? Yeah, racism was a, a challenging topic for me to approach. Now, when I started my research in the early 2000s, it was clear then there was racism in Leningrad and Moscow, or St. Petersburg, it's called, it's called now, of course. Um, xenophobia was abounding. There was violence on the streets. So in 2008, when I was in the middle of my, my uh, field work, was really the peak of racist violence the, in those two cities. And there was over 100 murders, uh, race-based murders in Russia altogether. Uh, and Russia at that time, and this goes back for quite a while, actually had the highest numbers of neo-Nazis in the world. So racism was clearly a factor when I was doing my, my work. Um, and it, it really started to appear publicly in the last days of the Soviet Union under Gorbachev, when the media opened up um, and Russian nationalists were calling citizens from the Southern republics that I study, uh, monkeys, blaming them for AIDS, for example. Now there are real demographic fears here. Russians were afraid that they were losing their uh, majority status in the Soviet Union. Uh, at the same time, before Gorbachev uh, and the, the sort of perestroika era, it appeared that the friendship of peoples did cushion racism. Now, there were a series of murders of African students in Moscow in the early 1960s, but generally you didn't get, um, you know, in my archive work and in my press work and my interviews, I didn't get the sense of a lot of, of deadly violence at the time. But when I talked to people, I still decided to make an argument for racism. Um, even though people the people didn't really recognize the term. So when I ask a subject, I'd say, so was there, for my first interview, I'd sort of say, was there racism in the Soviet Union? And I said, oh, there's, that's impossible. Racism is something that happens in the United States because they thought of racism as, as something that happened between sort of blacks and whites. And this is how they were um, educated. But when they talk about their own experiences, they would say, well, I was treated differently in Leningrad and Moscow because of my skin color, my hair color, shape of my face, the way my eyes looked, as well as language and culture. So things that generally scholars consider to be racist. Um, now there's a spectrum of actions here. It could be uh, as simple as somebody asking a question. And, you know, I hear this too myself in, in Canada. And it's always a, a bit of bit annoying. But where are you from? This question that sort of signals somehow you're an outsider, you're not from here. Uh, 
anything from that to stares to racist insults. People are actually called chorny, um, which is a Russian term for black, um, mainly because her hair was black, um, feelings of exclusion at job sites. Uh, there was some violence, uh, attacks on street traders in the 1970s and 1980s. A lot of people started to come up from the Caucasus and Central Asia. They could sell food, fruits and vegetables and flowers at a much cheaper price. Uh, so I really decided to make racism a, a topic of study in the book, but I, I also wanted to talk about this as a relationship. And this is one thing that I found was really interesting that most people try to minimize, and I, I think I'm not alone in finding this, the rule of racism in their experience to say, I had the power um, to determine my fate. And if I had to go to Leningrad in Moscow and face the occasional racist taunt and, and get stares on the streets and maybe a push here and there, I would take it because I wanted to succeed. Uh, and in fact, they had a lot of different strategies to, to overcome their feelings of frustration and anxiety. Um, a lot of um, anecdotes or stereotypes about the Russian population, saying, oh, the Russians drank too much, they were lazy, they didn't know how to treat their women. And so we came and actually, we were the true Leningraders and Muscovites because we were modern people. We worked hard, we studied hard. And even the Muslims from the South would say, well, we didn't drink. So it actually made us ideal citizens of Leningrad and Moscow. So it was really interesting to see on the one hand, uh, these manifestations of racism, but also I, I focused in my oral histories a lot and in, in the work on how people deal with it and the different ways that people incorporate racism into their experiences and not let it challenge or not let it overwhelm um, their life choices and their life paths. Nice. Now you, you have some very compelling stories uh, of the migrants and their experiences in Leningrad and Moscow. Um, what, you, what struck you as the greatest opportunities and the challenges of basing your book largely on oral histories? Yeah, this, this came from really the, the biggest gap I found in my first book on, on Tashkent, where I was, of course, looking at the late 19th and early 20th century. So there was no way to, to actually interview people at the time. I remember walking the streets of Tashkent and looking in windows and thinking, oh, of, of old houses. I think if only I could have met the people who, I, who are the subjects, people who, whose voices are silent and they are left out of the archives, left out of written sources. And so for this project, I could do it. There was people I met the first time I was in Moscow in 1992. I could go back and, and I just ask them things. You can ask them what you want. You can ask questions about daily life, things that we never really hear about otherwise. Um, from that to their thoughts on politics and everything in between. And you can be surprised by what they what you find. And, and the opportunity is sometimes what you don't expect. You just ask a question and somebody goes off on a tangent um, about an experience that they had, a certain um, romance that, that changed their lives, that changed the way that I thought about sort of how ethnicities saw themselves, these kinds of things. Um, and and the opportunity is also a challenge in the, in the sense that when you have these open-ended oral histories, and really I try to encourage people to just talk about what they want to talk about. And I had a list of questions and I, I would try and go through them, but if people were interested in one thing, I would just let them run with it. Um, the interview is as much about and for the subject as it is about my project. So the people who I was interviewing, I could sort of see this going on in their minds as you're sitting across from them. They're using this opportunity to, to, to rethink their own life paths and their own choices through the window of the present. 
Um, and the interview, of course, might be different uh, if the subject is, say, hungry and has time to talk versus the subject was in a rush. Um, it might be different if uh, they feel comfortable with me or not comfortable. It might be different if the news of the day was about some racist attack in Moscow or not. So there's a sense of subjectivity and performance that has to be accounted for. Uh, and I try to be upfront with that in the book uh, and talk about the fact that we're relying on impressions of events that occurred decades ago. But I also argue that every historical source is written after the act, written with a certain viewpoint. So there's nothing unique about oral histories in that sense. It's just about trying to be critical about the voices. I did a lot of triangulation, trying to understand uh, how oral history stacked up against each other, uh, against sources from the press that I was reading, against archival sources, uh, and, and that way to give the readers a sense of, of my own evaluation of what they were saying. Um, it's also interesting to manage the interviews. There are some people who uh, were really hard to draw responses from. I keep asking them questions. Um, you know, how was your experience in Leningrad and Moscow? And they just say, oh, fine. Normal though was the term they would use in Russian. Whereas others, I'd ask two questions and they'd be talking for two hours. Um, but really it was a diversity of experiences that struck me. And I was left with a lot of mystery still. And I, I sort of leave the books sort are of open-ended in a sense of trying to understand how, for example, I, as a historian, evaluate the fact that I interviewed two people who were in Moscow at the same time, um, same professional background, same things that they're doing in the city, um, same, more or less same appearance, skin color, hair color. One of them would say, for example, I was in Moscow from 1975 to 1980. Every day I left the house, I saw uh, I, somebody called me like a black monkey or, or spit at me or something like that. And another person, the other person would say, I was in Moscow from 1975 to 1980. Everybody treated me wonderfully. In fact, they thought I was a guest and, and I was almost treated better than the Russians. And, and how, how, how to reconcile that um, is a question I kind of left open for the readers. And, and I hope that's a discussion that, uh, that moves forward as we start to think about oral histories. Well, that's even-handed. I mean, you're basically just taking the stories and saying, here they are, and here are these unique experiences. And uh... Yeah, and that was, that was a real um, almost sadness I had, too, when I was trying to uh, write the book, is that these oral histories from beginning to end are a narrative, and they're stories. And it almost pained me to sort of cut and paste little bits and pieces um, to, to build my own narrative. But uh, at some point, you, you, you have to make those choices as historians. But the, the stories themselves are just fascinating. And, and I still think back to my interview subjects and, and uh, the emotions that they displayed, which is another thing that was really amazing to me. Um, you know, again, with this friendship of peoples and, and when they talked about their lives and their children and their families and, and their, their movements, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the catches in their throats and these kinds of things was it was quite something to see or to, to witness. Nice, nice. Uh, final question: With this, you know, historical look at this migration, what do you see as the legacy of this migration and its impact on what we see today in in Moscow and Saint Petersburg? Yeah, well, the migration has has certainly mushroomed, and so you know, depending on who you believe, official figures would say maybe about a million migrants from these southern republics that are the subject of my study. Unofficial figures might be like three million or more. 
Um, and it's the same system. I mean, it's, it's now there are different countries, but um, these, these networks that I talk about establishing themselves really starting in the 1950s, 60s and, and continuing to um, deepen in the next decades uh, are the ones that propelled these people forward um, in much greater numbers when the economic differential between the periphery, which is now cut off from Leningrad and Moscow in the south, and, and these, these two cities of St. Petersburg and Moscow um, were the ones that were getting all the wealth from the former Soviet state. Uh, and so many of the people I actually interviewed for this work were leaders of diaspora organizations in uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow today. So those were people who were came as young people in the 1960s, 1970s. They were well established and they helped a lot of these fellow um, migrants who were uh, <clears throat> who were there, who maybe didn't speak Russian very well, who didn't know the Russian legal system, um, tried to help them navigate uh, their new lives. And it's really hard. I mean, it's, I, I mentioned the racism in Moscow. Uh, it's gotten better now because Putin has cracked down a little bit on some of these violent uh, uh, xenophobes and neo-Nazis, but it's still not great. There's tons of corruption now. And this is the one thing that, that I think people were really nostalgic about in these oral histories when the Soviet period, everybody was a citizen. You had a passport, Soviet passport. Now you're not. Um, there's, there's active corruption among the police. Uh, at the same time, this, the drivers to get there because of this economic differentiation, I mean, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan are two of the top five countries in the world in terms of the, the percentage of, of their uh, GDP that's powered by remittances. So it's a real um, difficulty for these, these migrants. But you know, one of the weirdest things, it's going back to these surprises in oral histories I talked about before. So I remember when I was doing these interviews, again, this is at the height of racism, 2008, 2009. I'd be talking to Azerbaijanis or, or Uzbeks about how, um, how bad things were now and, and they must feel sad for all of these, uh, their fellow country people who were being attacked and killed on the streets of St. Petersburg and Moscow. And they'd actually look at me and say, well, you know what, when we went to, to Leningrad and Moscow in the 1970s and 1980s, we learned Russian, we dressed well, we didn't stand out, we, um, we learned how to, to assimilate. And these people who are there now, well, they don't speak Russian and they're lower class and not so much that they deserve their fate, but they were almost saying that they're, they're giving Uzbeks or giving Azerbaijanis a bad name because they're, they're not the same types of people. And I thought I found it kind of an odd um, thing that they're sort of ignoring the, the economic drivers. But there was clearly, again, when you talk about oral histories and all the complexities of them, um, blending past and present, blending different identities. Uh, that was another thing that I found really fascinating. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing these, these super compelling stories and insights that you have on this, this time period. Um, and congratulations on your new book, Voices from the Soviet Edge, Southern Migrants in Leningrad and Moscow. Thanks a lot, Jonathan, and thanks to the press for uh, doing a great job in putting it out. All right, thank you. All right, take care. Okay, bye-bye. That was Jeff Sahadio, author of the new book, Voices from the Soviet Edge, Southern Migrants in Leningrad and Moscow. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on his new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce. 
and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. Thank you.